Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. Today's guest is John Foster. That's John spelled without the H. J-O-N. His website is johnfoster.com. And of course you can see tons of images there as well as contact information about his Instagram account and all of the other social media that we all devour on a daily basis way too much. You can see a few images of his work on my site, brentwatkinson.com, as well as a link to his website if you need it. And as always, please click the subscribe button wherever you listen to this podcast because it's free. This is part one of a multi-part podcast. It's a little like George Pratt's podcast because I know there is a second part and there very well may be subsequent parts as well. The beginning of this podcast has a rather serious tone to it, but not a negative tone. Not a negative tone. It is serious, yet positive. It's meant to educate and to bring light to certain aspects of life and living that affect many, many people. Probably all people. John Foster had a little bit of a rough start in life and school and the art world. And I mean high school as well as college and art school. He is acutely gracious in this podcast because he opens up about his mental health issues that deeply affected his realities and his abilities to function in most aspects of society. His narrations of these experiences are not unlike many people in the art industries or any walks of life. Most of us know several people in many aspects of art and personal relationships that deal with diverse mental health symptoms off and on through much of their lives. John gives heartfelt descriptions and examples that will undoubtedly ring true with many of you listening, either with your own personal struggles or that of a loved one, be it family or a friend. And I want to sincerely thank John for being brave and kind with his participation in this manner, as it was the goal of both of us to bring these things to light and to let people know there is no longer any stigma attached to the subject of this conversation. The latter part of this multi-part podcast with John has him relating to us just how long it took to get the enormous level of success that he has obtained. It wasn't easy, but his perseverance, let me say that word again, perseverance and his self-checking on the quality of his own work and the type of work that he really wanted to do paid off in a magnificent fashion. The success that John has enjoyed, I'm sure, tasted exceptionally sweet due to the bitterness of the austere beginnings that he experienced. The next part of the interview will deal more with drawing and thinking and John getting some of those high-profile jobs, as well as getting hardcover books of his work published. John is soft-spoken and contemplative. He is gentle, quick with a smile, and eager to learn and help people any way he can. In my opinion, the world needs more of my longtime friend, John Foster. Let's get into it. John, tell us a little bit about when you were going to art school in New York City at Parsons. And you have a really interesting story about going to school there or not going to school there. Sure. It was, well, actually, finally getting accepted to uh, an art school uh, was a, a roundabout uh, endeavor 
that took it well it took a while i didn't I, I went to school after regular college after high school and and it was directionless and so I, did you go to a four-year school after yeah. high school okay yeah but i didn't go for four years i went for a year and a half and then i i had no direction and uh and part of part of the OCD, which is something I've been dealing with, you know, of course, my whole life was kicking in and making it difficult to, it already made it difficult to be uh, going to school for high school. Well, remind us what OCD refers uh, to. Yeah, it's obsessive compulsive disorder. So it's a, a lot of people are, or most people have a, a little bit of this, but with a true OCD person, it just spirals out of control into bizarre obsessions and compulsions. Um, could be counting or having to touch things, you know, a number of times. Or, or uh, for me, it was actually doing something uh, with a positive thought. Like, well, mostly it would be the end of an action with a positive thought. So any action, like taking a bite out of an apple needed to be done with a positive thought getting up out of a chair done with a positive thought and the more and more that you're stressing about well, it i'm not sure i understand so getting up out of a chair with a positive thought what what well, does that mean well because a lot of the times it would be i'd be thinking uh well my dad was a pilot so i'd be thinking uh oh dad's plane will crash today just because that would be that's what i'd fear and so then i'd have to sit down again and and get up with a thought that wasn't like that. No, dad's great. Going to be great today. And, um, but the more it's kind of like the saying that, uh, you know, someone says, don't think of pink elephants. Uh, and you can't think of anything else, but pink elephants. And, uh, so, and that's what's happening with that because you're stressing so much about it. And in it, you know, it's a bizarre kind of superstitious or not even kind of superstitious belief obsession, but, you just get so anxious. You, I mean, I was stuck in a room in a chair for half a day because I couldn't do it right. Uh, that kind of thing. So and I think, I think yeah. that there are a lot of artists, especially that do have some OCD or they have anxiety, they have depression. And I think it's not unusual for artists to experience these things. Yeah. Uh, many, well, all different kinds of, um, uh, mental, uh, neuroses or, or illnesses, um, uh, oftentimes the create the creative mind comes with this baggage. And so pretty common, um, yeah, along a creative world, but this, this would come and go in waves. Um, how much this affected me in my life it was, it was, it was questionable whether I was going to get out of high school just with grades or anything like that. Uh, so when you were referring to being stuck in a chair half a day, was that going to your art school or was it previous to that? Was it high school? High school. Yeah. So it wasn't the, the OCD didn't start when I went to Parsons. It, it had been part of my life for, for many years and, uh, but it would come and go kind of, it wouldn't go away completely but there'd be these times of it being really, really bad. And then times when it was manageable. So actually, so going to art school in Manhattan was a stressful time. And I, a new girlfriend and missed her. And so, yes, of course, things just kind of spiraled out of control. Um, so that coupled with, I think, an everyday kind of teenage you know, teenagers dilemma of what do I really want to do with my life? Um, you know, getting, even getting to art school, as I said, trying out different courses with a, you know, a liberal arts school and taking time off and then finally getting to, uh, go to, uh, Parsons. Um, but it wasn't the dream there. The school's great, but it wasn't the dream because the OCD kicked in and, um, um, I will more, say before even more severely than what you were experiencing, it was about the same as what I was experiencing when in high school, actually some of the high school, because it was so 
so new and so weird and didn't understand. Even then, um, psychiatric community didn't, I mean, they knew obsessive compulsive disorder that's been around for forever, but really understanding the way they did started to learn to in the nineties wasn't, you know, they were just treated it like mild depression or something. And well, you said that Parsons, the OCD, I think your words were really kicked in. So how did it manifest itself differently or more unsympathetically when you were in Manhattan than it was previously being on my own, uh, and in a, in a stressful place. And, uh, it was, I probably, I was probably just doing well. I probably said really kicked in because probably for, you know, a couple of years I was doing well. And then it, then it was always manageable. It was always there, but manageable. But then being in Manhattan and given kind of free reign to indulge these, these anxieties, you know, with this obsessive compulsive, you know, with my, the obsessive behavior and the compulsive acts, it was, a. It just led to me being, uh, well, basically it would, it would take 20, normally it would take 20 minutes to walk to class. I was many blocks away up from uptown from 14th street. It would take about 20 minutes, half an hour. But for me, it started taking me about two hours. I'd had to plan two hours because as I went through New York, I walking, I, I would see, I had to clean. It felt like it was my responsibility. Newspapers, trash, picking up stuff. Uh, if I saw chicken bones on the on the sidewalk, I had to pick those up because my my thinking was that um, my dad had always told me, "Don't give the dog chicken bones; he'll, you know, choke on them." So I thought someone's poor dog is going to eat this and choke on them, you know. So this was leftover chicken bones from someone's lunch. Or it was in the '80s in, in New York, so of course and. I'm picking up people's actually half-eaten lunch, and uh, or if there's broken glass, and it was over in the just in the curb by the curb, I'd have to pick up broken glass because some my imaginings would be some poor mother would be dropping off her kid to school or some appointment and get a flat and pull over to the side in an alley and then get mugged, and it was all my fault. So I needed to I, I was responsible for everything that was going on cleaning New York, making sure dogs didn't choke on chicken bones, keeping mothers safe. And so it would take me two hours to, to get the class. Well, and I can interject here that my mother has suffered from mental problems all of her life. And as, and I, I have to choose my words carefully here because as false or, and I, I hate to use the word silly, as, as false or silly as it may seem to other people, it's very real to the person that is going through these thoughts and suffering with them. So we may think, oh gosh, John, it's just a chicken bone, leave it. But to you, it was very real and you had to act. That's what a lot of people don't understand about people that are going through these symptoms. Thank you, Brent. And that's well put. And I would try, of course I would try not to do these things. And then I would walk and I'd keep walking, but it would be, it just, it was like uh, the volume of something was getting turned up. The volume of this, this anxiety was getting turned up almost with every step. And, you know, you're getting further away and you know you're going to have to turn around and go, even now will you be able to find it? Now you'll just be trying to find this broken glass and this, and also this, the embarrassment. I mean, well, I learned not to be embarrassed about my behavior then. I just, I kind of was in a, my own little protective bubble because it was, I was mortified, you know, people would be staring at you, but I knew I had to do it. But so... That was a lot of the time was just trying not to do it then having to turn around and go back and do it but so that how, the anxiety would stop. How social were you at this time? Did you have friends? Did you go hang out at the pizza joint on the corner, meet somebody for lunch? No, I was not very social. 
you know, I wasn't actually very social at all when I was in New York. Um, I had, it's not that I didn't talk to some people, I talked to some people in class and stuff like, uh, stuff like that. But um, it definitely, especially through high school though, this definitely curbed my social life or I think it stunted me maturity wise for back many years. Um, just because I just didn't do things or couldn't do things. Or if I did things, then all of a sudden I was the one with this weird behavior that no one understood. Were you able to do your artwork? Could you participate in class um, effectively? I did. You know, as I look back, I did. There would still be, there's still little problems with it uh, going on, but they were maybe things like that I could if you could imagine that you have to put down a charcoal brush stroke or, you know, charcoal mark as you're doing life drawing, but you know, actually that was a good mark. But then you said, yeah, but that's a bad mark. Not like it's a, not like it's an un, an unartistic mark. It's more like that mark has evil in it or something bad will happen to someone you love because you really wanted that good mark and you'd have to erase it and do it again was with a positive thought. I mean, it's bizarre stuff, but it, and it, and it was difficult, but I managed to get through the classes pretty well. Actually, I did, I did well when I was in, even with the liberal arts part of the studies and I, I got on the Dean's list, I had a 3.75 there. But at least I, I proved to myself that I wasn't stupid. Well, uh, I was going to ask, um, a couple of sentences ago if doing the artwork and participating in class gave you any relief from the OCD and you have just explained to us that no it all goes back to getting out of that chair with that positive thought you had to keep erasing and redoing marks to make sure that they weren't evil or bad and you weren't going to be responsible for the demise of someone else yeah yeah that was that was, oh yeah, always the case, but it didn't, I managed that way somehow to, to get things going through and making things. I do feel like I, there's so many things that I left behind or left on the table that would have been good or easier. I don't know if easier, but would have been quicker, but because of the illness, I'd redo, redo, or just check myself constantly with that. Well, if you were a 3.75, you obviously doing good work and participating. I was participating. Yeah. I had to, well, I paid for that school. Um, actually my grandmother helped a little bit with it, but that was my money. Uh, so I think there was incentive there. (laughs) Well, that's a good thing. Whatever it takes, I guess. Yeah. So did you get a degree from Parsons? No, I was there for a semester and then I, I knew I just couldn't, um, you know, dreams of my new girlfriend. She was in a very, uh, uh, rural school uh, in Vermont and, uh, you know, I, I wanted something like that, not to be in the city. I was not romanticizing Manhattan at all. You know, I remember kids would come in back to our dorm and talk about seeing Andy Warhol, you know, as they were out, you know, for the weekend and I didn't care (laughs) (laughs) and how I do, but I didn't then. And, uh, and so I, I said, you know, so I wanted to find a, a, what felt like a smaller school or a smaller city that was in between. So Rhode Island school design, which I wasn't accepted to when I first applied anyways, but now that I'm going as a transfer and also with a better portfolio of work from my semester at Parsons. I, I got into Rhode Island School of Design and then I ended up staying there. Was and, there some uh, relief for yourself mentally as well as physically going to that smaller school that you envisioned? Yeah, there was. I was also, you know, seeing a doctor now, a, a new doctor who was better at um, helping me, uh, more proactive with me, helping me with this. And, um, uh, and that was a, and that was a beginning of 
you know, because I don't really associate Rhode Island School of Design with with the same kind of OCD trauma and and drama that that I do with Parsons. So it definitely lessened there. Well, it's really amazing that you could formulate in your very busy mind that you needed to get out of there and you found solace in a smaller school. A lot of people would have just thought, hey, this is my life and I can't get out of this, but you figured out a way. So that is absolutely astounding that you were able to do that. Yeah, I like I like your take on it <laughs> because <laughs> because more it's more like I think I just lucked out in terms of running from something. I ran into something better, but that's not always the case. Because I remember the other doctor before that who um, wasn't the best. I don't think any. Uh, you know, if you have a psychiatrist that falls asleep on you, then blames you for falling asleep on you because says you're monotonous. That's not a good doctor. Yes. But I was too young to like, oh, I mean, I was incredulous about it, but too young to do anything more about it. than. But anyway, so he wasn't, uh, you know, that wasn't helping. But then the, the second doctor after that was. And um, but but that first doctor was like, no, you got to stay in school. You can't just, you know, keep doing it. Don't don't quit. Don't quit. Which you know, actually isn't bad advice from anybody. No, come on, stay with it. You know, don't let the illness do this. But well, did this first doctor that said, Oh, just stay in school, get it out. Was this person giving you any tools that you could effectively, well, see, (laughs) then that's, that's just really, that's not bad advice or medical advice. It's just, you know, somebody down at the you know, the corner store could have told you that. So without, (laughs) without the tools of, of giving you things to help prepare yourself, perhaps in the morning or on your walks, that's, that's really sad that, um, that that person had a license, I guess. He was, yeah. Well, I think it was in for that one instance, but they didn't, well, maybe someone knew better than him. I mean, he was, you know, he was the first doctor that my, it's not my parents' fault. They didn't know either. He probably came recommended, but you know, when I was in 10th grade and all of this came crashing in and of course they didn't know what was, what was wrong. And, and, uh, and I didn't. And, and as I said, OCD was, it was around and, and they knew about it, but therapies for it weren't an understanding of it. A treatment for it wasn't, um, wasn't very far advanced. And so, but you know, the, right now or in the nineties with some, just some medication and then doing, um, I always call it behavioral therapy, but I guess it's not that it's something, um, basically. Well, they well, changed ex- the name of that a couple of times. So if you it, want to refer it, to it that way, that's probably what it was. Well, I describe what it, it is simply with a, another kind of phobia OCD kind of, uh, deal with, you know, someone who can't, you know, touch garbage or something that they think is, you know, you know, slimy or sticky. They just have to wash their hands, wash their hands or germs, or they're just, maybe it's not even germs. They just have to wash their hands to get rid of that feeling. So basically, even though it's not even slimy or sticky, it's like, so they'd have someone put the garbage out and then, and then have them wait don't, don't wash your hands, you know, and it's going to build. I mean, it builds to extreme life ending in anxiety. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it really does. And then, and then, you know, if they can, with the help and maybe some medication, they can wait and then it's, then it peaks and then it drops off. And then the next time you do it, well, it, you know, you still want to wash your hands, but then it doesn't take 20 minutes or something for it to finally peak and drop off. It's less and then less and less. And then all of a sudden you're like, you've, you realize that you can outweigh this. You can do this. And it, the world doesn't end kind of thing. And, um, and you can manage it really. And that's, that's one of the big, uh, uh, processes for dealing with it basically is, is, not giving in, you know, to the anxiety. You do need tools to, to help with that. You can't just white knuckling it through it on your own isn't the same, but 
there's some medication or a doctor and, you know, supervision helping with this too, you know, that, that it's not something like being, uh, uh, manic depressive or schizophrenic. You, there's, you could actually have, have a big turn around to something positive in the day in a way, not like completely positive, but see that you've made some steps forward. So I just wish they knew that in the eighties. Well, mental health is getting so much better currently. And I can tell you from again, experience how far behind and lacking the resources were. I grew up in Missouri. My mother was seeing a psychiatrist my whole life and psychiatry for those of you wanting a definition, a psychiatrist will assign and prescribe medications to help with chemical imbalances in the brain. And a psychologist does not and cannot subscribe medication, but they found out a couple of decades ago that the drugs along with psychotherapy together and this behavioral therapy that you just talked about, John, that's a winning combination and that really helps. Yeah, it did. It, it, it did for me to definitely turn the corner. But I mean, I, I take Zoloft or, or it's called Sertraline and uh, both of those names. But I forget I forget which one is the generic uh, name of it. But uh, and that helped, too. Uh, and then uh, could the you beha- tell I, right away or did it? Usually no. it takes about two weeks to 30 days to build up in the system before you yeah. can, is that what it was? Yeah, that's what it, yeah, it didn't, it didn't help right away. It, it, it actually kind of doesn't seem like anything's happening, um, which is a little, of course, a little disappointing when you're, when you're hurting, but you know, you stick with it and it builds up and then, and then it was, a ma- you know, a, a matter, I actually did my own kind of behavioral therapy, you know, with the garbage and stuff like this, I, you know, hurt. I didn't do that with a doctor. I, I wish I, I had, but I, I started, you know, doing things. I, I had a point where I said, what do I want my life to be? You know, this, cause it's getting smaller and smaller because, well, this happened, it got a lot worse and uh, a loved one in my life left and not really, I mean, they stuck it out for a long time to, you know, with some really bizarre behavior that was actually starting to, not even starting to, was impinging on them and their behavior, asking them to be, you know, wash your hands, don't touch this, don't do this kind of thing. And and they stayed with that for quite a while until they couldn't anymore. And then I thought, what do I want my life to be? Am I letting this run? And this actually happened after RISD. So, you know, it, it would still come and go, it wasn't gone after Parsons, but, um, and, uh, but it, then I, with that incentive of knowing I want my life to be better and, and not get smaller and smaller and, uh, and with some medication and, uh, and some more understanding, I did my own kind of behavioral therapy. I'm still OCD. And if I let things get out of control or indulge and, and, you know, listen to the anxiety and do, you know, indulge in the, the compulsive behavior and, you know, you get bad again, being healthier and knowing how I got healthier is definitely a nice place to be, you know, that perspective. Well, I applaud you for number one, changing your environment. I think that was probably Uh, the major thing you did. And then you realized you needed a different doctor. And in your mind, you probably weren't saying a better doctor. You just needed a different one. You got some tools, you got some medication, and then you did, obviously you did all the things that you were supposed to do. So you weren't self-destructive. You did try to help yourself. And that is a monumental achievement in my mind. And I'm so glad you did. So now we have John Foster that we know and love. So that's a good <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. I love the way I love your perspective on things because it makes it 
of course my perspective is never like that you know it's a well i mean that's pretty common too this uh just like oh i lucked out or i was too dumb or i just took the easy way or you know or or i was just you know i was i was so wimpy i couldn't deal with the the stresses so i found a new doctor and medication you know uh it's a funny way of looking at it silly but i like your way better and actually your way makes more sense i just would i just couldn't you know skip on an opportunity in my life to punish myself you know (laughs) well yes the old self-deprecating you know roundabout that is hard to get out of i mean i think we've all been there and it's just it's amazing that that you somehow got out of that so yeah, fantastic. I'm starting to feel precarious right now. I'm like, how <laughs> did I? <laughs> call call Brent. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a pep talk anytime. Absolutely. I do that anyways. That's true. So you've taken us up to the point where you are out of RISD now. So you're looking for work, I presume. Then what happened? Yeah, I'm I'm looking for work and looking for work and looking for work. I had a portfolio that I, uh, of course, developed in my senior year at, at RISD. It was an editorial illustration portfolio. And that was because that was what all of my teachers did and were about. And the superstars were editorial illustrators. And uh, that's that's all the work you saw on the Society of Illustrators. And, I, you know, that was what I was going to do. And, but I wasn't good at it. And, uh, why do you, you, why do you say that? Well, it, I mean, I, at the time I thought maybe it was different, but I was dark still, you know, I was dark already then the, 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 my ideas were, were dark. It was more like if you had Goya, you know, doing editorial work. (laughs) So you were very negative. Right. (laughs) Not funny, not witty. Uh, more visceral and and negative, and so no, no one was really happy about that. Uh, not that and well, was no this one was impressed. Early nineties, mid eighties. When was this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Eighty nine is when I graduated. Okay. All right. And so I didn't have any luck with work there, and I did I did shop it around a little bit, but that was that was difficult. Too. This is pre-internet, by the way. Right. Yes, you go into New York, but but they still didn't want phone calls already at, at this point. You know, drop off a portfolio. Maybe maybe you could call them, get hold of them, and get an appointment. Uh, it was already changing then, but it, not. But there was yeah pre-internet, so there was a time when you just call and you go by and you'd see them. You know, more often than not, kind of thing, and then show a portfolio, and they might look at it in you know a couple of seconds and go, yeah, fine, see ya. You know, you might get a job, but you don't know. They were just kind of brutal that way. So there were assigned days that you would uh, drop off a portfolio uh, or several several of them. You'd go into New York and you'd go to the companies, the publishers, and leave it at this, you know, probably the front desk or something. You don't get to see anybody. And then you come back and pick it up the next day and don't know what their thoughts were or anything, but maybe you'll hear from them. Um and that's why being in New York would have been better uh, at that time as an editorial or an artist for whatever, you know, if the publishers were there. Just because it uh, was more convenient. You didn't have to make a special right. trip and hope you got your book in to see somebody and then turn around and go home. I mean, if you live there, then you were just there. And I'm sure it would have been a, yeah. a much easier task. It wasn't getting any any work there uh, anyways. And then I... I quickly reassessed what I wanted to do with, with my, my art and what I was really interested in. And, uh, in, in my initial, my original love was the, why I got interested in thinking I wanted to be an illustrator an artist was, you know, because of the covers on the, the paperbacks I was reading and getting from my brother and then reading and, you know, uh, Frazetta, you know, our science fiction stories, the fantasy stories, um, comic books. And, uh, you know, why was I running from that? 
and I was because I think it was not it was frowned upon from all of the teachers it wasn't it wasn't in art school it wasn't the way it is now in terms of the embracing uh fantastic work because of you know there's so much with movies and games now and the different versions of all different kinds of entertainment uh that seeing this outlet for art is is very viable but back there in the 80s it was just childish stuff science fiction fantasy now you mentioned frazetta who were your other influences who were doing these covers that you were so Oh, uh, Mike, Michael Whalen. So it'd be Michael Whalen and Frank Frazetta for the most part um, at that time were, well, F- F- Frank probably wasn't doing that many covers at the time. Frank, I say, like, as if I knew him. <laughs> Your personally. pal, Frank. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Frazetta, but uh, <laughs> Michael Whalen. And, uh, you know, there would be some others. Uh, oh, yeah. I, Actually, there were because of the comic book world. So those were the ones before I went into art school. They were, yeah, this is it. Then going into art school and more exposure to, well, your your classics of, you know, of painting in uh, N.C. Wyeth and Pyle and uh, then then contemporary and then uh, going to the comic book world. Um and this is out of school than like Kent Williams and George Pratt is George was just working very young. And so he was a big influence for, for me, um, you know, just a few years out of school. And so George, um, there was a Richard Bobber was another one. There were, I like weirder kind of, uh, artistic covers. Uh, so I was getting away from the slick looking or my interest was getting away from the slick looking, science fiction or fantasy covers, illustrations to, you know, things with like Sinkevich and, and, uh, like Williams and George and, um, and others I'm drawing a little bit of a blank now, but. And were you reading the books as well? Oh yeah. Yeah. Did you read mad and cracked and weird war tales, creepy, eerie, all those standards that I grew up with? I did not. I did. Well, mad and cracked. Yes when I could get my hands on them. I didn't read uh, a lot of comics when I was younger. I actually started really reading uh, or buying and going to the store my senior year at RISD, which means I was 25. And then <laughs> till now, it's it's lessened in the last few years or, or maybe decade in terms of going to the comic book store. But, um, but you know, from, from my reintroduction by a friend who was a huge comic book aficionado and fan um and then uh, you know reading the dark knight returns and the watchmen it had already been out and was in trade paperback by the time i was like you know oh this is cool so my friend had introduced me to these works and they were new to me um uh, i'm always late to the game and then well what uh, were they Oh, well, the, the works I the, the Watchmen and uh, The Dark Knight Returns, um, Frank Miller's Ronin, uh, later, and I might be putting some things in early, Sienkiewicz's Stray Toasters, I'm not sure when Sienkiewicz, Bill Sienkiewicz did um, Electra Assassin, and, oh, they were just, it, you know, between graduating from school and then the years that it took me to actually finally get work, I'm developing a portfolio and these are these, you know, with George and Kent Williams and, and then Phil Hale and Rick Barry, they were all these mixes of people of me influencing the art that I wanted to do and actually started getting work with. Um, while you were reading these comics, I mean, were you just sucked in by the artwork and that's all you cared or was it, the story were they well written yes they were well written i was yes the story was very important i didn't i would buy a lot of comics just for artwork but i'd ultimately be pretty disappointed oh, guilty as charged here yes yeah disappointed when it you know just was wasn't that interesting i mean the, the story wasn't that good so a little bit later there was dave mckean who um was I was thinking about a comic that I as at Arkham Asylum, beautiful 
book. The story, I think, is fine, but I barely kind of remember it. It's just overly saturated uh, artwork uh, in this piece by Dave McKean, which was just uh, amazed me. Um, so these were all things that were I was emulating, inspired by, but couldn't do <laughs> ability-wise. And, and again, just, just to point th- out, none of this was digital. There was no digital yet. We were, no. or we were right on the edge of, you know, tomorrow is going to be digital, but what you're talking about was not. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, none of that was, let's see. Uh, so McKean probably, Dave McKean probably came a little bit later because he's, he did have some digital going on, but he might've been one of the people that made me think I need a computer. Um, you know, one of the early, early. Yeah, I think he was guys. a crossover guy. Yeah. And, uh, so I was, I was re, I was just had full-time jobs, you know, uh, that weren't very exciting jobs at like an art store or the library or Staples or et cetera, that were trying to pay bills and then, um, and then, you know, working on a portfolio and, and I would go to science fiction conventions and show the work and not get very good responses for, for years really. And then, um, uh, and, and as I was developing and then, you know, but I just kept at it. I, you know, I didn't, I know I didn't want to work in the art store full time. So, and I didn't know what else I could do. There was nothing else I really wanted to do. And so I just, um, kept plugging away at it and, um, practicing and making portfolio pieces. And, and then finally, you know, got better and got some interest. But by that time, eight years had gone by. Um, well, that's a, a great story for people to hear because I went through the same thing, maybe not quite that long, but I think all of us just just lived with this rejection and we're not good enough and what do I need to do to get good enough? And we just, like you said, kept at it, kept at it, kept at it, got very little feedback that was positive, but in our own mind, we thought, you know, I'm going to do this. This is what I need to do. So I'm glad you were able to persevere. And you were also still probably battling some issues with, with your personal life at the same time. So it's amazing that, that you were able to hold out eight years. Good for you. Yeah. (laughs) I want to, I look back and I think, I don't want to have to do that again. Maybe not with a, you know, the foreknowledge. It's like, would I have the patience? Um, the uh i think oftentimes i think that that just being you know blissfully blissfully ignorant was quite the gift i always said i girded my loins with ignorance (laughs) because i just i didn't care about anything except doing the work and getting better here look at this here look at this here look at this and then i'd get a cookie you know (laughs) oh you know this this corner of your crappy illustration is starting to work. Oh, okay. Yes. That's true. And you have mentioned several times too, and the process is just wanting to get better, knowing you need to get better. That's Recogn- important. Yeah. Recognizing that you're not good enough and wanting to get good enough. Yes. Very important. Um, otherwise you're not going to get better. If you think you're good enough and you just don't know why people aren't giving you work, then, you know, then you're not going to be looking to get better and to grow. Um, so it's important in, in, in part of the, the whole mental structure of, of, of growth and putting your portfolio together and, and uh, finding work is that you are of a mindset that is looking at, okay, this isn't really working. It's not like you need to throw out your desires about how you, you know, the kind of artwork you want to make you need to actually look at yourself closely and go, well, this isn't working or this isn't that good. How will I get better at doing this? And then, you know, that's a more concrete way of saying, well, I'll paint more and I'll draw more and I'll, I'll go to class and study more and stuff like that. In so many more workshops now, and you can sit at home and go to an awesome class now online. Yeah. This is before 
any of that. <laughs> we well, we yeah. can definitely like gripe about that or just say, I walked to school barefoot, <laughs> uphill, both ways, there and back. <laughs> well, and, and it becomes a brain game because you have to get into this self-analytical observation of the artwork that you're doing. And then you have to say what's working, what's not. Then you make mental notes or physical notes, whatever it takes. And then you have to get back to the other side of your brain and respond. And you have to do these beautiful things, these aesthetic things. And you have to recognize when it's happening. And I just remember flipping back and forth. Is this good? What should I be doing? Oh, I'm, I need to analyze what are the colors in this white sheet? What can I use to make this beautiful neutral that's just not a dull color. I knew I had to make neutrals out of colors, not just black and white. And then just trying to constantly ask yourself and analyze and analyze and make something aesthetically that, you know, beautiful, that's going to turn an art director on and get their attention. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. As well put, I should be interviewing you. (laughs) <laughs> which would be a good interview. We should turn this around because you have a career that we should talk about as well. And a lot of my color, a lot of the things that bounce around in my head uh, when I'm working or teaching are things that you have said about color that have just run through not stay invent, with me. I did not invent color, John. No, I, I you did. I know you did. <laughs> I own blue. Every time you but, use blue, I get paid. Yes, yes. I hope you do. <laughs> I need to get paid. I'll pay you. Um, <laughs> finally, some work did start to come in and it came in and it started pretty quickly. Then it, of course, nothing is like, you know, the faucet is off and then, and then it's running full force. It didn't really work like that. There were little jobs here and there and, you know, fits and starts, but it was about eight years before it really started and kept going. And then I was, making a living from the illustration work. And, um, uh, I will, I will, before we, we move on, you know, from this, I would say that while in school, I was told by, well, two teachers, one teacher, cause I, I think some of you might be like, Oh, sure. Right. Modesty. You know, I'm sure you were good. And i okay. Put modesty aside no self-deprecation. I was okay. My sketchbooks were really, I'm incredulous that they're so bad in the sketchbook wise. I did some okay work, but I wasn't good. And I had a teacher tell me, um, and this was unsolicited on my part, uh, just tell me that I had to work really hard for mediocre results. Wow. But you, you, you are confessing that he was correct or not? Well, I guess he was in a way correct, but he, you know, he was basically kind of telling me that I shouldn't do this. You know, that was his thing. There are other art, there are these other students that, you know, just comes naturally to, and you know, you probably could be an illustrator, but you know, maybe, but it was working really hard. What made you go on? Because that's a pretty that's a pretty tough statement to hear when you're a young tender age trying to make yeah, your it, way. It, yeah, it devastated me. It did. Um, still does in a way. Um, but it also, uh, I, I, it wasn't his intent. I know it, no, knowing this teacher, and he was actually a well-known illustrator himself through his life and, uh, and then a well-known artist after that. And, um, uh, he was someone that I grudgingly respected, you know, so it wasn't just, oh, just this, you know, some teacher, he was of note um, and his work was amazing. And uh, so it had even more impact. Um, I, I think that he wasn't the best, uh, what would it be called, you know, socially, you know, tactful. He wasn't, he wasn't tactful, but it did crush me, but it did, but in another way, it actually just took off mm, some kind of bind, you know, the, the binders or their blinders or something. He just said, well, if it doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter. I mean, I, 
if this is crap, it's crap. And then I'll just, you know, stop trying so hard to make a, this, what I perceive, or I think people would perceive as a good looking illustration and, and I'll experiment more. So it was more sort of more finger painting, scraping into things and doing weird stuff. And it was much more the, the visceral dark things that I was doing. That was the editorial work, which I actually thought were some of the, at that time, the better work, it just wasn't good for editorial. But um, it, so it did in a strange way, it was kind of like, well, there's nothing else to lose. We just, let's just jump in. Well, it's interesting because your self-motivation never ran out. And I have been in teaching situations a lot. And I guess this is tough love, or maybe this is being a bad person, but I tell people all the time, I can't be a cheerleader to you. If I have to motivate you to work and to do artwork, then I don't think that's a good combination. So I'll, you know, my joke is I try not to hinder, you know, I'm not going to say anything <laughs> mean and terrible and bad and be a bad person. But if I have to, you know, go into class and pump everybody up and try to get them excited about artwork, I, I guess I'm in the wrong place too, maybe, but you didn't have that problem. You got shot down and you were still motivated. Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, I, I was, I still, I don't have an answer for it in a way, not that you asked for an answer for it, but it, it I don't know where it came from and why I kept going <laughs> again. I think it was just like, I, you know, I, I, what you're saying is I gird my loins with, with, uh, ignorance and uh and just didn't there was nothing else for me to do it wasn't like i had it wasn't a desperate situation i think i just was like no well i'll just keep trying or maybe i'll be able to do a kind of illustration that isn't so so difficult or you know isn't so elite you know the the simpler stuff i'll be able to make some work or get some work you know some way somehow kind of thing it's it is amazing because i don't think of myself as the most positive person all the time well that's probably just because of the ocd stuff maybe i am actually pretty optimistic it's just the, the illness it was just this uh, different kind of thing uh and take on things but it, but maybe ultimately i am or just ignorant enough to just keep going there was that one folk tale or fairy tale about the one it was like the now I shouldn't even mention it but the it was the boy who didn't know the sh what the shivers were you know he didn't shiver he wasn't afraid it was just so simple oh. <laughs> he couldn't even get scared you know he he spent an, like a week in this haunted castle and the and the ghost tried to scare him every which way but he just like was like oh oh that's silly or oh this or you know they were bowling empty skulls into the room and he picks them up and goes oh thank you for the cup you know kind of thing and you know and uh finally he learns to shiver when he's cold or something like that kind of thing is how oh, i have the shivers that's me hey everybody that is the end of part one with john foster but don't worry there's more to come stay tuned to this bat channel <laughs>